Well, I always seem to start off my episodes with uh, this statement. It's been a while. <laughs> and uh, today is no exception. Uh, it is uh, certainly no exception because it's been a while. It's been about, oh, well, it's been about a year and a half since I recorded my last uh, podcast episode, I think. Um, but uh, anyway, I hope you all are doing well. This is uh, Christian Bassar speaking again with another episode of the Historical Thoughts and Interpretations podcast. Um, and today, what I'm going to be looking at is a... Uh, is the fall of Mamluk Egypt in the early fifth, early sixteenth uh, century, um, and actually this is this is actually based on a, a paper that I wrote a few years ago. So you can have a look at it. It's a, just a short little paper if you prefer to read it instead of uh, listen to it. It's academia.edu, and so that's the site where I've I've uh, that's hosting this paper. Academia.edu for those who don't know, it's um, it's a very good uh, site. It's it's kind of it's almost like a social network or a if you're doing scholarly work, like if you're in history or sociology, whatever, you can upload papers and uh, you can connect with each other and everything like that. So uh, I've uploaded a few papers there and this one is, is also there. So you'll see if you look up my name on academia.edu then if you look up Christian Basar, B-A-S-A-R, you will see uh, my work there. So this uh, paper is entitled Corrupt and Obsolete, an Analysis of the Fall of Mamluk Egypt. So um, I just thought I'd do this as a as a, a as a do a podcast version of it, cliched term, but let's jump right into it. You know the roots of Mam- of the Mamluk Empire in Egypt it started during the um, Muslim Ayyubid dynasty, and Mamluks were originally slaves with uh, Turkish origins, and they were brought into the army. But many of these slaves eventually became military commanders, and they were given ikta or or tax farms which gradually made them into the state military recruiters and part of the aristocracy. So they, it was literally kind of a, a slaves, to, slaves to rulers, basically. And in the mid-13th century, the Mamluks killed the Ayyubid Sultan and took control of, of Egypt. And the Mamluks soon took over territory in Palestine and Syria, so they moved into parts of the rest of the Middle East. And so they were able to do this, and also, not only that, they were able to conquer these territories, but also repelled invasions by the Mongols and the Crusaders. And they were very skilled in horse archery and swordsmanship. So the Mongols have gotten a very, um, you know, they're, they're widely known for having um, incredible skill in using horse archers in their, in their combat. And the Mamluks did the same thing. But... The Mamluk Empire could not survive its war with the Ottomans in 1516 to 1517. So, yeah, they may have defeated the Mongols and the Crusaders a few hundred, few hundred years earlier, but when the Ottomans came, it was, it was a different story. Um, and there were two reasons for this defeat, which we'll go over in this podcast. Um, at first, by the time of the Ottoman War, again, 1516, the Mamluk military class had sort of lost its way. It had become a class of rich, corrupt, and un- undisciplined oppressors. And secondly, the Mamluks shunned firearms, which were around by the time, but refusing to adopt them on a wide scale, left their the Mamluk army obsolete and um, and at the mercy of the modern Ottoman Empire's military. Because remember that a few decades before that, the Ottomans took down uh, Constantinople, you know, the capital of the old Byzantine Empire, and they had huge cannons that uh, had to be pulled by you know, that were absolutely huge, right? Uh, I forget exactly the size, but they had to be pulled by huge, huge teams carrying them, right? So this shows that the the Ottomans had that capability to bring modern uh, weapons to the front. Uh, so the Mamluks weren't allowed, weren't 
willing to do that. So, in the end, corruption weakened the Mamluks, and the lack of good weapons prevented it uh, prevented them from uh, protecting themselves effectively. In the early days of Mamluk rule, the Ottoman Turks formed a defensive buffer between Egypt and Europe. But the Mamluk-Ottoman relationship turned hostile in the late 14th century after Syrian rulers raided Turkish territory. The consequent tension culminated in two wars a century later in the 15th century, in which the Mamluks were uh, victorious and a peace was established afterwards. But relations soon soured again after 1513. And this was when the Ottomans, under Selim Shah ibn Othman, fought a war against Shah Ismail al-Sufi, and he was known as the leader of the two Iraqs. Uthman had feared the possibility of problems with his, with his Shia subjects, who supported al-Sufi. And, and al-Sufi decided to champion their cause by warring with the Ottomans, which, but he was soundly defeated. And this allowed Uthman to attack uh, other areas, including Dogadir and Mesopotamia. And so uh, this conflict between the Ottomans and the and Shah Ismail al Sufi, um, it it brought them towards it brought the Ottomans towards war with with Egypt. In 1516, the Mamluk Sultan uh, Kansu al Guri uh, decided to move an army to Aleppo, which is of course in modern day Syria, um, and he just decided to observe the war between Uthman and al Sufi. He believed that whoever won that war would then invade Egypt, though Uthman insisted that his quarrel was only with al-Sufi. Um, Muhammad ibn Iyas, a, a contemporary writer, he said, quote, Nothing could deter Uthman from wiping off Ismail Shah from the face of the earth. But the Ottoman ruler had no intention of fighting the Mamluks. Ibn Iyas believed that this was a deception. Uh, for while Uthman sent Alguri diplomatic gifts, he was supposedly plotting to invade Egypt at the same time. There were a number of reasons why Othman might want to want to backstab the Mamluks, so to speak. For example, a, a disloyal brother of his was living in Egypt at that time. Local rulers who could supply the Ottoman military were dependent on the Mamluks. And aside from the diplomatic gifts, there was little posi positive contacts between the two powers. So, yeah diplomatic gifts, but <laughs> everything else? Well, who cares about those gifts, right? Ibn Iyas wrote that Uthman broke the peace by capturing multiple fortresses, leading to a battle at Merjdabek. Here the Mamluks killed many enemy soldiers, but they lost the battle, and the Sultan al-Guri died, leaving the Mamluks without a sultan, and Arab raiders took the opportunity to pillage, their ter to pillage Mamluk territory. Tuman Bai, who had ruled effectively while al-Guri was on campaign, he was declared the new sultan. The Mamluks suffered a major loss, though, at al-Shariat. They th then they suffered a third and final defeat in January 1517 at the Battle of... And, and I'm sorry, I, I don't speak Arabic, so <laughs> I might butcher this pronunciation, but uh, at the Battle of Raidineya, uh, after which the Turks advanced into Cairo and took control of Egypt. So the Mamluk, Mamluk Empire was officially um, taken over in January 1517. So the fall of the Mamluks had a long origin and multiple contributing factors. One of the most obvious factors was the quote-unquote corruption of their class. They had retained the Abayid, uh, Abayid uh, practice of the Iqta tax farm system, which I mentioned before. And under the Iqta system, they taxed the peasantry, or which were also known as the Felahin. And Iqta holders ab abused the peasants by relentlessly taxing them and even forbidding them from leaving their farms without permission. 
which is kind of interesting in 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 Russian history, you see the same thing. The, the instead of um, uh, you, you could call them serfs or, or peasants, right? And they they weren't allowed to leave uh, except on certain days, at certain holidays. And so, uh, going back to Mamluk Egypt, uh, Ibn Ayas, uh, the writer, noted multiple cases of abuse even during the Ottoman War. He spoke of a man named Janem Janem Al Ifranye a quote-unquote rapacious imported Mamluk who looted and harassed people while on campaign. In another instance, in another instance, coercion was used to raise funds for road and wall construction, but this was actually a scam. <laughs> so this was an example of public works being used for corruption, for personal enrichment. Uh, Ibn Ayas praised Tumanbai for carrying out justice in such cases, but this kind of Mamluk oppression was common. So even though Tumanbai stood up to this, you know, it still happened. It was, an, it was an endemic problem in the Mamluk system. Eventually, the Mamluks saw their iktas as hereditary entitlements. And so corruption was increased among this landed class, causing a decline in agricultural production and the stagnation of public works. Worse, the Mamluks began to leave military service, which had consequences for the economy. So uh, the sultan was forced to was now forced to rely on other sources of fighting men, and he had to tax trade in order to maintain the army. So when the Mamluks are sitting on their iktas and and they're just gaining personal wealth and just taxing the the peasant the fellahin under them, and they see, well, why do I need to join the military? I have a comfortable life here, right? You know, just kind of going into their point of view, and so. So now there's less money going into public works and the sultan has to bring in other men and he has to raise taxes. So t such taxation uh, impoverished Syria and it effectively affected Egypt's uh, trade with the Mediterranean and Indian Ocean markets. So, <laughs> you know, this is a kind of a relevant um, thing right now because Canada and the United States and Mexico seem to be you know, the future of NAFTA, and it depends on many, the North American Free Trade Agreement, the, the, the future of that agreement is, is in trouble. So, um, but now it's, there could be a question of, I'm, I'm certainly not an economist, but, you know, the idea of wanting to trade with another country because it's a possibly a good market, you know, if that tra incoming trade is going to be taxed, if I'm going to lose some of my profits sending my commodities to this country, well, why would I want to trade with them? I'm certainly going to um, lose interest, right? So this is sort of what happened in the, in the Mamluk case. And so this um, decline in trade, it strained the treasury of the Mamluk uh, Empire, and it caused great problems for Tumanbai when his troops demanded money during the Ottoman War. In deserting their military obligations, the Mamluks also lost their combat effectiveness and military spirit. As an indication of this problem, David Ayelon uh, wrote about the decline of the Mamluks' military training from 1382 until the Ottoman conquest of the early 1500s. And the traditional exercises, he argues, known as furisia, taught the Mamluks to fight on horses with swords, lances, and bows. But during the 14th and 15th centuries, various hippodromes, which the hippodrome was a term you have, uh, used for an area um, that was used for cavalry training, and hippodromes became unstable, unusable during, uh, due to the River Nile flooding, uh, political tension, and neglect. They, they just fell apart. 
uh, in general, military training greatly declined. So by Alguri's time, Mamluk uh, combat techniques were sloppy and or simply even forgotten. Alguri tried to revive this Furusia training, but this was not enough to save the Mamluks from defeat. Alongside poor training, some Mamluks displayed poor battlefield discipline during the Ottoman War. At the Battle of Merjdabek, some of, some of the Mamluks deserted Alguri after the battle was lost. Ibn Iyas wrote um, about these Mamluks. They, he, he really berates them. He says he display, they, the Mamluks, in his view, displayed, quote, no feats of horsemanship, and they were useless in combat as blocks of wood. So he's, he's really getting poetic about this, but he's saying, you know, these guys were, were stupid, they weren't fighting, they were not using their horse, they did not seem, did, seem to not know how to ride a horse, and they were, you know, a block of wood would be just as effective as them in, in combat. So these exaggerated negative descriptions could have been written due to the frustration of defeat, but Ibn Yas's words certainly fit the narrative that in which the Mamluks lost their military ethic. And before the final battle of Redinia, uh, Sultan Tumanbai proclaimed that all royal Mamluks should stay at their camp overnight because there was a problem with them leaving or, or leaving to go home. So he said, stay at the camp. You know, he has to remind them. It's, uh, you know, if, if you have an army that's dedicated to, to fighting and defending the, uh, the empire or state or nation or whatever, you shouldn't have to remind them, stay in your camp, right? Uh, there was at least one brave Mamluk in the Ottoman War. I'm, I'm sure there was more, but um, Ibn Yas described one in particular. His name was uh, Sudun Ibn Janibe. And this Mamluk, he, he was a high rank, of high rank, and in battle he, quote, showed great courage in, in action and splendid feats of horsemanship, end quote. But others caused trouble before the Battle of Al-Shariat, by refusing to march out to battle unless they were paid almost four times their current wage. Uh, yet the treasury was empty, so this created a loyalty crisis, and the Mamluks threatened to leave uh, Sultan Tumanbai over this. Though they had not been provided with horses, clothes, or weapons, these Mamluks' wage demands were impossible to accommodate. And this crisis was averted only after Tumanbai commanded the sale of many items and even offered to step down in favor of the late Auguri's son. Lack of discipline and commitment is fatal to any army. When soldiers are unmotivated and put their needs above those of the state they are supposed to protect, the state is vulnerable. Remember, going back to, you know, you shouldn't have to remind soldiers to stay where they're supposed to be. When the Mamluk military class became rich through their ikta taxes, they had little reason to serve in the army, and the Mamluk army's obsolete tactics and weaponry only compounded this problem. Going back to David Ayelon, he noted that the Mamluks refused to use artillery in the open battlefield, and they reserved them mostly for siege warfare. There were, there were very real tactical considerations. Uh, cannons were essentially upgraded versions of siege engines like trebuchets and catapults, which had been used during the medieval times. And also, battlefields with moving armies and quickly changing conditions could, would make cannons less usable than in sieges, where stationary walls were vulnerable targets. Yet the Europeans, had, they, they were starting to use artillery in battlefields as well, with moving armies and everything, after the Battle of Cressy. And so, by the, so the, with the Mamluks refusing to use cannons in an open battlefield without a siege situation, they're, they're really setting themselves behind. And Sultan al-Ghuri appears to have attempted to change this, for he, quote, started using cannon at a rate on a scale never before known in the Mamluk kingdom. But none or at least very few, of these were deployed at the Battle of, Battle of Merj Dabek, where they would have been badly needed. 
This was because the cannons were primarily used to protect coastal... In addition to being used in siege warfare, cannons were also uh, used to protect coastal positions in the Mediterranean and Red Seas, as both the Ottomans and the Portuguese posed threats in these waters. Atumanbai also deployed them defensively at the Battle of Redinia after scrambling to bring them from Cairo and other places. So they were used at the last battle, but they were it was a, it was a panic to get them there. Redinia was expected to be a prolonged affair, and Tumanbai fortified his camp with cannons along along a stretch, lines of shields, and wooden defenses. Yet the cannons were outflanked and captured from the rear, and the Mamluks lost within hours of the battle's start. Despite their efforts to deploy cannons en masse, the sultans Alguri and Tumanbai could not revolutionize Mamluk tactics in time. Handheld firearms were also not introduced in large enough a scale to change Mamluk uh, fighting techniques. In his account, Ibn Iyas mentioned that the Mamluks were manufacturing muskets, and at one instance, they deployed about 30 or more oxen-pulled carts carrying gunmen. So the Mamluks certainly did have muskets available, but aside from a few shots fired at the Battle of Rodinia and some desultory engagements, unquote, you know, there was little little evidence available uh, on the use of Mamluk guns in the war with the Ottomans. It, it just certainly, it, it seemed to be a rare thing. Uh, they just weren't using them in enough of a uh, capacity to really change what was going, what was what the end result was. So the Mamluks suddenly stuck to their traditional sword and bow fighting, and this prevented the mass deployment of firearms. Earlier, we saw how Alguri revived training in the Furusia. This was actually a path of least resistance, so to speak, for Mamluk culture was so accustomed to this kind of warfare that any significant deployment of guns would require a massive reorganization and adjustment of military thinking. So they got stuck in the old in the old ways. And the development of new weaponry always requires changes in any army, but Mamluk culture blocked such an initiative, making it much harder to, to adapt to the new battlefield uh, conditions. The cannons didn't pose such a cultural danger because they came earlier than firearms, than handheld firearms, and this allowed soldiers to get kind of used to them, you know, culturally accustomed to them, if you will. But cavalry and the bow were part of Mamluk identity. It was part of their culture, and replacing these status symbols with guns would have been a grave dishonor. David Ayelon suggested that even if Alguri did not revive Furusia, the cultural contempt of firearms would make their adoption impossible without a rebuilding of Mamluk society. And it's, it's quite ironic, actually, that even if the Mamluk class had lost their fighting spirit, this fighting spirit as previously suggested, they conservatively kept their traditional fighting methods to their own peril. It is worth noting that Alguri further endangered Egypt when he greatly publicized Furusi's revival by showing combat exercises to foreign dignitaries. So, one of uh, the Ottoman Sultan's diplomats even appeared regularly at these displays. So, through these exercises, the Ottomans could see that the Mamluks had concentrating on improve, trying to improve obsolete tactics, and were thus militarily unprepared. By the time of the Ottoman War, it was too late. And uh, so, throughout history, many states have fallen due to internal military and social weaknesses, and the Mamluk Empire of Egypt was a prime example of this. In becoming comfortable with their statuses as wealthy landlords, the Mamluks forsook their traditional military service duties, and this affected the army's manpower, discipline, and overall effectiveness. The Mamluks' refusal to implement firearms and their tactics en masse was another nail in the coffin. To summarize, in failing to deal with corruption and adapt to changing military conditions, the Mamluks fell to the modern Ottomans, who turned Egypt into a subservient province.
Well, I hope you guys enjoyed the uh, the podcast there. So, um, yeah, I've I've, I've uh, I thought I'd do some more of the um, a podcast based on the papers I've put on academia. So yeah, so I have a few projects coming down the the pipe, so to speak. So uh, so keep a listen. Please subscribe to the podcast, and thank you very much, and have a good one.